Amen. Thank you, Chris. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us words, while fully inadequate to describe your majesty and your glory, you've given us words that we can sing back to you, Lord, in praise and adoration. Lord, the wonder of all things you've created, the marvel of the human heart. Lord, we ask that we would be men and women today who would hear your words. Lord, that we would submit to them, that we would turn these wicked hearts to you, that you would give us hearts of flesh to replace our hearts of stone. Lord, may we turn to Christ in all things. Lord, give us the first thought of what would Jesus do? How would Jesus live? What would Jesus say? Lord, may our lives mimic those of the one you sent to save us from our own sins, the Messiah, the Christ. Lord, may we not be like the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, who seeing your good works turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to what you've called us to do. Lord, may we hear and receive your word today. Lord, may these be your words and not my words. Lord, we ask that through the Holy Spirit that you would bring these words to life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was younger, before I started to drive, I worked for my uncle. And many of you remember my uncle Steve. He owned a pet store here in town for a lot of years. And he would pick, he'd pick me up on Saturday or in the summer and take me to work with him. And I would work and learn what to do and how to work. And I was, I don't know, probably 13 or 14 at the time. And I remember one of the first things he would do is he'd walk in the doors and he'd turn on the lights and he'd go and he'd stand with his back to the doors and just look at the store. And he would say, what do you see? That's what a customer is going to see. So what do you see? And I remember one day in front of the store, so right when you walk in, there were two shelving units. And one of the shelving units had a single fish tank on it and it said, freshwater fish starter kit, $99. Right next to it was the same exact shelving unit, but had at least a dozen fish tanks that said, premium freshwater fish tank starter kit, $279. So what do you see? And I said, well, it looks like this one is almost out of stock and this one has plenty. So later that day, someone comes in, and to my memory, which is a little fuzzy these years later, a grandmother and her grandson came in, and he wanted fish, and so they bought that final fish tank set for $99. The tank, the gravel, the filter, the heater, the water conditioner, and along with that, he sold them a couple fish. So they get up to the register, and I ring them up, and it's $210 or something, and discounted to $99, they go home with their fish. And he told me, that's basically what our cost is on all of that, about $99. This is break even, we don't make money selling this, which I was confused by because I assumed that was the goal of having a business was to make money. And he said, we're not selling this kid a fish tank, we're selling this kid a hobby. This kid will go home, he'll love these fish, 
He'll come back, he'll need a new tank, he'll need a bigger tank, he'll need more fish, he'll need new gravel, he'll want a little castle for it. We're selling him a hobby that he can learn to love. And then he went back in the storeroom and he brought out another $99 tank and put it on the shelf by itself. He said, we're also selling scarcity. <laughs> nobody buys the $279 kit because nobody else has bought the $279 kit. Everybody buys the $99 kit because everybody else has already bought the $99 kit. The more I spent time with my uncle during those years, the more I learned about sales and how to front face and clean up a stock and shelving and all different kinds of things that I learned by being with him and watching him do things. I remember one day we walked in and instead of, what do you see? It was, what do you smell? And at a pet store, that's usually not a good question. <laughs> so I, I said, I, I smell ammonia and dirty tanks for rodents or something? And he's like, yeah, that's a hamster. If you knew a hamster cage was gonna smell like this, would you want a hamster at your house? I said, absolutely not. He said, neither would the customers. Why don't you go clean the hamster cages? <laughs> so I went and cleaned the hamster cages. My kind of premise for today is that the more time we spend with someone, the more we talk, the more we walk, and the more we act like that person. The more time we spend with someone, the more we talk, the more we walk, and the more we act like them. We see that in Acts chapter 3 as Peter and John are establishing the new church. The Holy Spirit has come. They've seen great miracles. They've seen people coming to faith by the thousands. And last week, we saw that they had devoted themselves, that is this early church, Acts 2.42, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Taking those things and now continuing on with this new church, we see Peter and John doing just that. One of the things they devoted themselves was to prayer. And in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were going up to the temple for a time of prayer. This one was at three in the afternoon or at the ninth hour. And in Acts chapter three, verse two, a man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. And Peter and John looked straight at him. So I want to look at five things here in this first passage that we can take from Acts 5, most of 3, and then a little bit into 4. The first is that Peter and John had compassion. They saw this man who was lame from birth, never having walked, and later in the chapter it'll tell us that he is over 40 years old. So for 40 years... He has never walked. His friends or family carry him, and every day they bring him to the temple walkway that's by the gate that everybody has to enter through, and they set him down that he might beg for money to get enough food to live today. 
Literally, give us this day our daily bread. No more just trying to survive today. Then somebody would come and pick him up and carry him back home. That was his life, coming to the temple, begging, and going back home. Peter and John lived in a society that was much like ours in terms of homeless and needy and destitute. There were people all around them that were begging. What I noticed about this was Peter and John had a compassion for someone that hundreds of people walked by. Hundreds of people saw this man, they recognized him, and they just walked by. But Peter and John took compassion on him, and they said, look at us. Verse 5, so he turned, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I do not have silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk and entered the temple with them. They still had a plan. They were still going to the temple to pray. They just brought along a lame man who is now walking with them into the temple. He was walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened. While he was walking and holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's Colonnade. So now... All the people have seen this. They're amazed and astonished and excited, and they all come up to Peter and John and to this man who was formerly lame, and they see him walking, and it doesn't say they ask a question. It just says they just go up to them, and they probably don't even know what to say. They know it's the man. They know earlier that day he was sitting there, unable to walk like he had for decades, and now here he is walking. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Definitely a rhetorical question, right? Like, well, because he was lame yesterday and he couldn't walk for the last 40 years and here he is. Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? What an example of humility that all of these people come to Peter and John, and they're standing there, Peter and John probably giving this man an arm or a shoulder to kind of hold on to as his feet are regaining strength, and certainly it would have still been difficult for him to walk, and so he's learning to walk for the first time in his life. And Peter and John are there with him, and they're like, why are you so amazed? The people are looking at Peter and John. Peter and John don't take this for themselves. They don't take the credit or the glory. They simply say in verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life, whom God raised from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. So they got more than they bargained for. You know, what's happening? How did this happen? And then Peter just kind of lays it on him like, well, you know, God sent a Messiah. He had promised to send a Messiah, and you killed him. 
And that's certainly not what they were expecting when Peter made this man walk. So Peter, then the third thing I want to look at, the compassion of Peter and John, the humility of Peter and John, and then the immediate turn to Jesus in verse 16. By faith in his name, that is Jesus, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know, so that the faith comes through Jesus and has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. So Peter takes this opportunity that's right before him, and the people come to Peter, right? They come to Peter, and they just want to know how this happened. So Peter creates this opportunity to tell them about Jesus. They didn't come and ask about Jesus. Peter simply decided, that's where I'm going to start. Jesus had done this miracle. The man had faith that Jesus could heal him. And then Peter says, well, let me tell you and let me back up a little bit to tell you how this man is now walking before you. See, this man had faith that God would truly send a Messiah, that God sent his Messiah and you killed him. And that's the reason that this man can walk is because Christ had been killed and buried and resurrected to new life. And in faith, this man walks because he believes in Jesus. Peter creates this opportunity to tell them about Jesus. And there's not a lot of times in our lives that people come to us and just say, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. What do I need to do? I don't think that's ever happened to me. Somebody just walks up and a random person just wants to be saved because they know they're a sinner. It's situations like this that something has happened. Someone has a problem. And we can create those opportunities to tell them the good news. That you were sinful and the wages of sin is death. What you earn from being a sinner is death. But then we can tell them the good news. That Jesus came and made a way that you don't have to pay for those sins. That you don't have to be the one to pay the wages of your own sin, which is death. And that's the opportunity here that Peter and John create. Verse 17, they continue. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your leaders did. And in this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Now, in all good marketing and in all good sales, there's a call to action. The call to action is generally what do you want someone to do with the information they have? So you tell them all about why the product is great and then how to buy it. Or why they need something, how to acquire it. So Peter and John have told them, you need faith. You see this man, he has faith. Jesus healed him from his lameness. He was unable to walk and now he can walk. And that same God that sent his son to die for you now offers this to you. And here's their call to action in verse 19. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Turn back and repent from your sins. That's the call that 
Peter and John gave to these people. What do we need to do? Repent and turn back, that your sins might be wiped out, that your sins may be washed away, that you might have a clean slate, your dirty clothes washed and made new, your life renewed because of Christ. Repent and turn back so that times of refreshing from the Lord may come. That's the hope and the joy that we have as Christians, that we've repented and turned back, and now there's times of refreshing from the Lord. Heaven, verse 21, must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. You must listen to everything he tells you. And everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. That's bad news for the Jews that are listening to Peter. That God will send a prophet. And you must listen to him. And if you don't listen to him, you'll be completely cut off. There's not much worse for a Jew than to be completely cut off. For them, religion wasn't just attendance. It wasn't just part of their life. Their religion was their life. Being cut off meant they couldn't go to the same places. They couldn't spend time with the same people. They couldn't shop at the same stores. They couldn't live in the same places. So for them to be completely cut off was some of the worst news that they could hear. But after the bad news comes good news, verse 24. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to those after him have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. Here's the good news. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. There's no good news unless they first know the bad news. The bad news is that if you don't listen to the one God is going to send, you'll be completely cut off. In their mind, they had been completely cut off because what they had done to Jesus. But God raised up his servant to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. Peter and John had compassion on a man who was unable to walk. The people saw that he had been healed, and Peter and John used that to tell people about Jesus. And let's look at the result in, verse, in chapter 4. While they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. That's important in the biblical story because there were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, generally the, the two groups of people who made up the Sanhedrin, different amounts of Pharisees and Sadducees, kind of political religious groups. The Pharisees believed that there would be a resurrection. The Sadducees believed that there was no resurrection of the dead. It's easy to remember because the Sadducees had no hope. They had no belief of an afterlife. Therefore, they were sad, you see. It's easy to remember. The Pharisees believed that the Sadducees had no hope of eternal life. Verse 3, so they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. 
Peter and John grabbed this opportunity that they saw. People were curious. They wanted to know what had happened. And they asked them, what is going on here? Why is all this happening? Why is this man who was lame and unable to walk for 40 years now walking in the temple? And Peter and John grabbed that opportunity and said, it's because of Jesus. They took that opportunity. Now, in contrast to that, we're going to see here in verse 7 that the high priests and the chief priests and all the people, the leading figures of Israel, are just straight out with their question. So let's see the difference here in verse 5. The next day, that's after Peter and John had been arrested, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? By what power or in what name have you done this? Now, the first time, they didn't ask. The people were just amazed, and they just wanted to know what was going on. Okay, Paul calls that an open door. Paul says in Colossians 4, he says, Pray for us that God may open a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. Paul tells the Colossian church, pray for me that these type of doors might be opened, that I might boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus. That's what they did, Peter and John. They saw this opportunity and they walked through the open door. And now Peter and John, now before the leaders of Israel, have a whole different situation. They just ask them, by what power or in what name have you done this? So, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 8, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you healthy. The answer is by what name and what power? And Peter says, it's because of Jesus. Because of the name of Jesus, in verse 7, he asks, verse 10, they get the answer that this man has been healed. Now, I, I don't think it's strange that later in life, Peter is probably looking back on this situation and many others, and he tells the people who are reading his letter this. He says, In your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and reverence. Peter looks back on his life and he says, be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Why do you have hope? hope. Why in the midst of tragedy are you able to still praise the Lord? Why would you come to church when God has taken so much from you? Why would you pray to the Lord if he's not answering you? Why would you read your Bible if God is not giving you what you want? 
That's what the lost world wants to know. And Peter says, be prepared to give a defense for the hope that's in you. The expectation is that there is hope in you. That you know that there is more to life after death. Peter was ready. Immediately he answers, how did I do this? Well, it was because of Jesus. It was the power of Jesus, the name of Jesus that did this. When my uncle sold dog food, he had two kinds of dog food. Literally the cheapest dog food that he could buy and an extremely high quality dog food. And I'm talking like, like you know, 25 bucks for 50 pounds kind of dog food, like cheap. And then like $150 for 50 pounds of dog food. A lot more expensive dog food. Most people would come in and they just want dog food and it's a dog and so they'd come and they'd grab the cheap bag and he'd offer to help carry it to the register. And as he was carrying it, he was always asking them, you know, what do you think dogs in the wild eat? Are they like carnivores? Are they eating chicken and beef, whatever kind of meat they can find? Are they vegetarians? Are they like a cow? Are they eating soy and wheat, cornmeal, rice flour? What are they eating in the wild? And of course, you know, dogs have canine teeth. They don't chew like a cow does. Their teeth aren't flat. They're obviously carnivores. They're meant to eat meat. So he'd turn the bag over and he'd explain, you know, the, the ingredients that are listed show the most common ingredient by weight. That's the first ingredient is what's going to be in the bag the most. So the cheap bag is cornmeal and rice flour and wheat germ and all kinds of things that are grown in the ground, different grains. And they turn over the other bag of the expensive food and it would say chicken. And he would give them that contrast. The thing is though is it wasn't just to sell the expensive food, but he really believed that that was best for dogs. He bought the expensive food and fed that to his dogs because he truly believed that dogs would be healthier and they would live longer and they would be better off if they had what they were supposed to be eating. It was a conviction that he had that he would put his money where his mouth is. And he would get frustrated if people didn't want to buy the expensive dog food. And it's like, that's expensive, but it's better. If you don't care about your dog, then get rid of your dog. And so he also had a lot of dogs because sometimes people would take him up on that, like, all right, do you want it? Not really, but okay. So he had too many dogs most of the time, but having that conviction was important because he truly believed that the dog should eat what a dog was supposed to eat, and they were supposed to eat meat and not some grain. Al Mohler says this about convictions. He says, convictions are not merely beliefs we hold. They are those beliefs that hold us. The beliefs are not simply opinions. They're not simply things that we can take in and take out and we kind of replace. But convictions are deep-seated beliefs. 
That's the difference between having an opinion that can change and having something that is firmly fixed is that conviction. A conviction is to believe a non-negotiable truth, something that doesn't change, that you hold firmly to, so firmly that you would even die for it. You've probably heard the name Justin Martyr. He got, obviously, his last name by way of being martyred. He was called Justin originally and been given the name Justin Martyr. And I want to read to you a short history that someone took of him being interrogated by a Roman governor called a prefect. It says, the prefect Rusticus, that's the Roman governor, says, approach and sacrifice all of you to the gods. That is Justin and his followers, his disciples that he was training in the way of Jesus. Justin says, no one in his right mind gives up piety for impiety. We're not going to change and exchange our religious devotion to Jesus for some kind of sacrilege that you want us to offer here. The prefect Rusticus says, if you do not obey, you will be tortured without mercy. Justin replies, that is our desire, to be tortured for our Lord Jesus Christ and so to be saved. For that will give us salvation and a firmer confidence that at the more terrible universal tribunal of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all the martyrs with him said, do as you wish, for we are Christians and we do not sacrifice to idols. The prefect Rusticus read their sentence. Those who do not wish to sacrifice to the gods and obey the emperor will be scourged and beheaded according to the laws. So they are going to be tortured, and flogged, and then beheaded. The holy martyrs, glorifying God, listen to this, took themselves to the customary place where they were beheaded and consummated their martyrdom, confessing their Savior. They walked themselves to be flogged. They walked themselves to the chopping block. And they laid their own heads down on the chopping block. This was not a lightly held belief that they had. These were deep convictions that they believed were more important than anything else that they held to. Justin Martyr, in one of his most famous quotes, said, you can kill us, but you cannot harm us. What a great picture of what it means to have a conviction about something. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. That's the conviction that Peter and John had. There is one way that we've been given, one way to be saved. There is one way. This is present tense. This isn't just a past tense that there was a way. There is only one way to be saved. You know, if you can imagine being in a courtroom, it's hot, you stand up because the jury walks in, they hand the envelope to the judge, the judge asks you to stand and the lights are on and the jury sits down and the judge is going to read the findings of the jury. They've seen the evidence and against you, the evidence is that you are an extremist. 
that your extremist faith threatens the harmony of society. That you hold out of touch radical religious beliefs, that you're a danger to society, that you refuse to compromise for the greater good, and that you are leading a subversive group to follow a convicted traitor. Can you imagine standing in that courtroom? Because that's not just a story, that's literally what Peter and John are experiencing. They stand before what would have been Congress and the Supreme Court accused of teaching people about a man they just killed a couple months ago. And here Peter and John stand with firm convictions, knowing exactly what they believe. From verse 8 to verse 12, Peter explains in no uncertain terms what they believe. I don't know if verse 7, that question, by what power or in what name have you done this, was genuine. Do they not know? Or are they just baiting Peter? Tell us what you're going to tell us. But Peter doesn't care. He's willing to convict himself at this point. Yes, we follow someone that you convicted of treason. We do think that he's the only way to salvation, that there's no other name under heaven given by which people must be saved. Can we accurately and simply stand before other people and tell them what we believe? Sometimes they're just going to ask. Peter says, be prepared to give that defense. Be prepared if someone were to ask, hey, your life seems like a mess. Seems like God is punishing you. Seems like bad things have happened to you, to good people. Why do you feel like you shouldn't just walk away from God? Why do you have a hope? Why do you still have a joy? Be prepared to give a defense. There's one name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That's the conviction that Peter and John had, that they were able to clearly state what they believed and why they believed it. And there's a very easy reason to understand that that comes in the next verses. Why were Peter and John able to be so bold? Verse 13. This is the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, when they had observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. They recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. That's these unbelieving people that killed Jesus that chose to have a murderer released to them instead of letting Jesus go free, those are the people that recognize that Peter and John have been with Jesus. The more time we spend with someone, the more we act like them, talk like them, walk like them. Peter and John were bold like Jesus. There was one way like Jesus. They preached a message 
because they had been with Jesus. They lived a life that was bold because they had been with Jesus. Justin Martyr and his disciples followed closely all the way to their own death because they had been with Jesus. The Sanhedrin looks at Peter and John as uneducated and untrained men because they were. Peter's from a backwoods town. His accent betrays him. Nobody respectable comes from that kind of place because nobody's been trained. Nobody's been educated by the rabbis. And here comes Peter, sounding different than he should because he had been with Jesus. They're confused because uneducated and untrained men should not be able to come before trained and educated men and leave them speechless. And yet Peter and John were able to leave all of these people speechless because they had been with Jesus. They saw the man in verse 14 that was paralyzed, was lame, standing with them, and they couldn't say anything. They didn't know what to say. In 1 Corinthians 1.27, Paul says that God chose the foolish things to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong. God chose Peter and John to shame the Sanhedrin. God chose that way for that to happen. God chose for Peter and John to be bold. But that's not how they always were. If you remember, just months before this, Peter had been scared enough by a servant girl at the fire to deny Jesus. When just recently, right before that, he said, I'll never deny you. I'll die if I have to. And then a girl's like, aren't you that guy that walks with Jesus? No, no, not me. You know, Peter's willing to deny Jesus. That's the end of the Gospels. And then in Acts chapter 1, Peter's preaching before 120. In Acts chapter 2, he's preaching before thousands. In Acts chapter 4 and 5, he's standing before the Sanhedrin and basically writing his own sentence. The growing boldness of Peter shows that he had continued walking with Jesus. He had been with Jesus, was walking with Jesus, was teaching like Jesus, was living like Jesus. He had been with Jesus. It's like this whole story here hinges on this part. All of these things happened, their compassion, their humility, they're pointing back to Jesus. All because Peter knew what it meant to walk with Jesus, to talk like Jesus, to live like he did. That's my question for us. Have we been with Jesus? Have we been with Jesus enough? Do people look at us like the Sanhedrin did? Are they amazed in recognizing that they've been with Jesus? I don't know if there's a greater testimony that someone could give about you, especially if we consider the courtroom. Yeah, he reads the Bible that talks about Jesus. She prays goes to church, fellowships with other people. They try to walk and talk and live like Jesus. That's their goal is to be like Jesus. That's what they were saying about Peter and John. They lived like Jesus because they had been with Jesus. 
if you are still like Peter when, you know, Peter was earlier in his walk where he's falling in the water because he lacks faith, because he's denying Jesus, that's okay. Peter's confidence was never in himself. Peter's confidence was in Jesus, that we can trust Jesus more than we can trust ourselves. I remember after a while working with my uncle, you know, the more I worked with him, the more I sold like he did, the more I recommended products like he did, the more I talked like him. There was a restaurant full of bowl next door. I ordered the pastrami because he ordered the pastrami and it was good. The more I spent time with him, the more I acted like him, the more I talked like him. Is your life reflective of time spent with Jesus? Is it evident to those around you? Would they say that you have been with Jesus? This whole story starts there. They keep going on and they, they tell Peter and John, you can't keep talking about Jesus. And Peter's like, well, we're going to anyways. Well, if you do, we're going to beat you. So be it. And Peter continued on talking about Jesus because he held that conviction that there was nothing else in the world that mattered to him more than that. They set him free because they can't hold him. And Peter and John, they go back with all their friends in verse 24, and they start praising the Lord for giving them these opportunities. Verse 28, they said that you have predestined for these things to happen. Whatever your hand and your will wanted to happen is happening. What a great hope that we have that we can be like Jesus, to walk with him, to talk like him, to share the good news that he came and died for everyone, that he offers a way of salvation and a way of hope. We can defend what we know and that he has predetermined our steps, that he knows the way that we will walk. Verse 31 of chapter 4 ends it here. When they prayed, the place where they assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Amen. That we might, like them, continue to speak the word of God boldly. That it'll be evidence that we have been with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, give us that opportunity to speak your word, to create those opportunities to seize those opportunities that are presented to us, to hold fast to our convictions, especially like Peter and John, that there is only one way, one name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Lord, I pray that our lives reflect that we have been with Jesus, that we worship you in spirit and truth, that we live lives that are obviously different that we reflect the goodness that you have for us, that we are compassionate, that we're humble, that we see people in need and we seek to meet those needs. But like Dr. Gomez, that we also seek to meet their spiritual needs, providing for them in a physical way and giving them a hope of eternity through Christ. Lord, we ask that we would continue throughout this day to be worshipful of you, that our hearts would be in tune to your Holy Spirit, that we would seek to walk by the Spirit, to keep step with the Spirit, that it would be evident that we have been with Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.